Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, There's and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, together. please visit bergenparkchurch.org. And so today we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 9, and actually in Matthew chapter 9 we're finishing up this section in chapters 8 and 9 where the authority of Jesus is on display. In the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching and the authority of Jesus' teachings on display, but in chapters eight and nine, what Matthew does is he arranges nine miracles. And he sets these nine miracles into sets of three, and each one of these sets reveals something about who Jesus is. And today we're coming to this, this final set of miracles that reveal something about the authority of Jesus, but I'll tell you, as we go through this passage, it reveals something about us, something about our condition before God and what we truly need. That though we may not recognize it and though we live in a world that discourages it, we are desperate for God. Scripture's constantly telling us that as we need air, as we need water, we need life through God's presence. And so much in life will fill that void, whether it's just getting out and, and being physically fit, whether it's success or comfort. There's so much in life that seeks to satisfy part of that void, but when challenges come up, it reminds us of what we truly need and what we are desperate for. And so we're gonna jump into this passage in Matthew chapter nine, verse 18, and we're gonna pick up a series of stories of individuals who are recognizing their desperation for God, and it's showing up in their life as they pursue. So we're gonna pick it up in Matthew chapter nine. We're gonna look at verses 18 to 34. The word of the Lord. And while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to him, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and said to her, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out throughout that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, it will be done. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame throughout that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out of him, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, would you help us as we gather this morning? Would you meet us, Lord? We know you're here. Would you enable us 
to be aware of your presence. And Father, aware of your presence in our place of greatest need. Whether our greatest need is to know who you are and the fullness of your character. Whether our greatest need is simply humility to admit that we need you. To admit, Father, we need forgiveness. Father, to admit that our desires, our affections are out of line because we've been attached too much to the things of this world. Or Father, we simply need to be awakened to the reality of the power that you have in this world. That Father, you are both capable and compassionate. Holy Spirit, flow through us, flow through this time together and meet us here, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a series of stories and actually this first story, it's two stories that are put together. A story about a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader whose daughter has died. Now Matthew, as Matthew is accustomed to, he doesn't talk a lot about the details. If you wanna find out the details of these stories, you can actually go to Mark or Luke Because Mark and Luke both put these stories together. And they reveal to us this man's name. Now, Matthew just says, a ruler. Doesn't even tell us it's the ruler of a synagogue. So this is a man with religious authority. And this man with a religious authority is coming to Jesus because he's desperate. Now, stop for a minute. If you go back into chapters eight and nine, you're gonna realize religious people and Jesus, they're not getting along. I mean, did you notice they just called him demonic? See, what's happening in the Gospel of Mark is things are moving toward, I mean, Mark, this is not Mark, you knew this. This is Matthew, Mark is a different story, but in the Gospel of Matthew, things are moving towards the cross. And as Jesus is performing these miracles, as his authority rings out, as he says to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, as he's hanging out with Matthew, someone who's unclean, The religious leaders are watching this and it's causing them to question their own categories around God. Now the crowds don't have any, they don't have anything against Jesus, but see the religious leaders have a lot to to lose and this man Jairus is a religious leader and he's in a sense, he's sacrificing everything to come to Jesus. Because see the people that he knows, the people that are around him want nothing to do with Jesus and yet he recognizes what Jesus can do And in humility and desperation, he comes to him. And I don't know if there is any greater desperation than a father or a mother who has just lost a child. It's that place of emptiness, that place of pain. And you wonder, what can God do? How can God meet meet me in that place of brokenness? And yet he comes to Jesus and this story plays out in a miraculous way. And so let's pick it back up in verse 18. And while saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him. Now recognize as a religious leader, kneeling before anyone was an act of disgrace. Because see, men wore these long and flowing robes. They often didn't show emotion, and so they were very reserved. But here's a man who's at the end of himself, and he believes, Jesus, you can solve this problem. And he opens himself up in complete humility, not just before Jesus, but realize there's a crowd of people around him who respect him. And he's laying his respect, his authority, and he's saying, none of this is worth anything. Jesus, I'm laying it down before you. And in that moment, in verse after 19, as 
as he's waiting for Jesus to respond, look what happens. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up to him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I touch his garment, I will be made well. You have this man who's waiting for Jesus to respond and what happens is an interruption. You're in this place of desperation. You've just poured your heart out to God and somebody else comes in and takes your place. This woman steps into this place of desperation and she reaches out. She touches Jesus and she says to herself, if I only touch him, I don't have to speak to him. He can make me well. You see, both in this religious leader and in this woman, one, a recognition that Jesus can make a difference and a deep humility and radical willingness to go out and live by faith, meaning to reach out and to touch Jesus. Now, in this story, we see this woman has had this chronic disease for 12 years, and she's been bleeding for 12 years. And according to Luke's gospel, it says that she spent every single dollar that she has on physicians, and no one has been able to help. And so you could imagine the scenario she's bleeding and seeing in Jewish life and really in ancient life, and really today, blood means life. To lose blood means to lose life. And so she's physically weak after 12 years of bleeding. But not only that, she's contaminated. I mean, if you see someone else and they're bleeding and you see blood on their clothes, I imagine all of us still today, we kind of back up. Because where there is blood, there is contamination. And see, this flow of blood caused this woman to be unclean which means she wasn't allowed to be a part of community and society. In religious terms, she was unclean. She was kept from gathering in the sanctuary, in the temple. And because of that, I imagine she carried a lot of psychological issues. She had been kept away from those she loved. She wasn't able to touch anyone. Anyone that touched her was unclean, and anything she touched was unclean. This is a woman who's used to being rejected, but in desperation, she believes that Jesus can help and she's willing to reach out to him. And so she does. It's a sad and quite horrifying situation. And you can imagine what that condition might feel like. Maybe you've been in that circumstance where something in you's been exposed. Somebody shared your story. Maybe you shared something in private but somebody decided to share it in public and that sense of shame and guilt comes over you. And it's bad enough when shame and guilt comes over you and then when somebody uses that story and maybe they use it in a way to hurt you, to harm you, it causes you to pull back from community. This is kind of where that woman has been for years. She's been pulling back and pulling back and finally she hears this story and maybe she's been in the crowd as, as Jairus comes to Jesus and says, if you'll touch my son, I mean, my daughter, she'll be made well. And maybe she hears that and hope begins to rise in her say, wait a minute, if if he can heal a dead girl, maybe there's a possibility that he could heal me. And so she comes to him with this great humility because she's attracted to Jesus. She believes that he can make her clean. And when you compare these stories, Matthew's trying to show us the difference between these two individuals. Because see, Jairus, his daughter, is 12 years old. This woman has been sick for 12 years. This man is a ruler in the synagogue. This woman cannot enter the synagogue. Mark and Luke give us this man's name. This woman is never named. Jairus is respected, or Jairus, I know I've said that like three different ways, haven't I? But this woman is rejected. 
And the idea that Matthew's showing us that there's no one too insignificant, there's no one too messed up to whom Jesus will not give them his attention. That Jesus is compassionate and he is capable of meeting any need. And so the question becomes, how does God, how does a holy God respond when in faith we expose our shame, our guilt, and our brokenness before him? Well, watch what happens in verse 22. And it says, and Jesus turned, and notice the language, and seeing her. Matthew could have just said, Jesus spoke. But see, for the first time, she has been seen. I recognize what's going on in your life. I understand the pain. You could imagine that coming from another human being and yet coming from the living God, he looks at her and he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. It's interesting, this is the only woman in the Bible Jesus calls daughter. And I think that's strategic. A woman that has been shamed, that has been cast out, You see Jesus in his compassion reaches out and he looks at her and he says, I see you. I see what's happening to you. I see what's been done to you. He could have just healed her. I mean, she was. When she touched it, he could have, it could have been just a moment, he could have let it go, but when he looks at her and he calls her daughter, there's a restoration of this woman's identity. Not just of her soul, which certainly needs to be transformed, but when in that place of guilt and shame, the father says, I love you, and you are my daughter. Recognize this little girl who died, she has a father who's defending her. And as we celebrate Father's Day today and as we recognize the valuable role that fathers have to play, all of us wanna defend our children. All of us wanna care for our children well, but this woman had no one to defend her. She is the fatherless. And yet Jesus becomes the father to the fatherless. He's willing to identify with those who feel cast out and cast off and says to her, daughter, I know what's going on. I love you. I care for you. And again, we think of this this contrast. Jairus, the synagogue leader, is pleading for his daughter. This woman has no one to plead for her, but in her simple act of faith, God responds to her need. God responds to her need, and he meets her need. And he says to her, your faith has made you well. Now, I wanna pause there for a moment because that can be a dangerous phrase. Because I imagine many of us have prayed and and maybe we've wondered, maybe I just don't have enough faith. But see, faith is not just simply something that we contain in ourselves. Faith is in the object and that object, in this case, is Jesus. And when the object is Jesus, then Jesus will accomplish what Jesus accomplishes. Sometimes that is healing, sometimes... It's not, but the faith isn't just so much just in us. It's also a faith that we have to act upon. Because you notice both this religious leader and this woman, they do something. Sometimes we sit back and we say, God, would you do something? You know what he's waiting for us is for us to take the first step. For us not just to admit that we need him, but to get in a community of people who also admit that they need him and admit that we need him together. See, sometimes God shows up when we simply pray, but sometimes God wants us to take that first step. And throughout this passage, you see that each one of these individuals takes an act of faith. You know, sometimes when I'm incredibly stressed, one of the things I do almost every single day is I probably walk about eight miles a day. 
That's how I de-stress myself. Because when I walk, it just kind of frees me up to think, to pray, and often when I'm facing a challenge, here's one of the questions I'll ask. I'll ask myself, you know, if you really live by faith, if you really trusted that God is who he said he is, what would you do differently? Not just simply what would I believe differently? Because see, faith is about belief, but if you trusted who God is, that he is loving, that he is in control, that he loves his enemies, that he prays for those who persecutes us, that he has all things in his hands, if I truly believed that God is good and compassionate, how would I live differently from the way that I'm acting right now? You know, that's the process in a way of living by faith. It's challenging our own narratives and stories. It's challenging our own anxieties and fear. Because see, often what we do is we just live in anxiety and fear. We allow that to become our storyline. We allow that to dictate our behavior instead of saying, Father, right now, if I just simply trusted you, and then ask, and then listen, listen to the Spirit. The Spirit longs to reveal truth. What would it look like for me to walk by faith in this moment? to trust you, what do I need to do? We see it in the lives of these individuals because they recognize Jesus has what I need and I'm desperate enough. Bless you. You're just gonna talk the whole time. She's trying to steal my show. But we're desperate enough to need him. So that's the first story. This first story, actually, it, actually it's not the first story. It continues on. Uh, my, my mind's a little scrambled right now. So let's jump back into it at verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, meaning this little girl had died, verse 24, he said to the crowds, he said, go away. For this little girl, she's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And that's what we would do. Do you notice that laughter is a very common response to God's promises? And, and not just by those that reject him, but by those who trust him. One of the first stories where God made this radical promise was to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah, how old are you now? 84, 85? You're gonna have a son. What'd she do? She laughed. Because it seemed unbelievable. Now Matthew told us that this girl is, she's in fact dead. And Jesus says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Now, why? Often within the Gospels, there's a greater narrative behind just the story. And see, Matthew's leading us to the point that we know how this story is going to end. We know that Jesus is going to die and he's gonna rise again. And in his death and resurrection, he vindicates, he's vindicated, showing us that death is not the end. See, death is not the end. Instead, to Jesus, death is but sleep. Death is but a moment in which we awake again into God's presence. And in this story, it's not just a picture of healing. It's a picture of what God does for us when we trust in him. That when we trust in him, death is, is not the end. But instead, just as we see in this story, God takes us by the hand. And the first voice this girl hears, the first face she sees is the face of Jesus. And this girl is raised. It's a miraculous story, but it reminds me of this passage in Matthew 19, 14. And it says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. 
And then verse 15, and he laid his hands on them and went away. There's something about the heart of God that is attracted to children, but you know, historically, most cultures haven't valued children, especially young girls. Even today, a young female, uh, a baby could be cast aside. We've heard stories of cultures casting aside little girls. And see, that's the narrative, that's the culture in which Jesus is living. Now, you can imagine, we've seen all these miracles, and yet this most miraculous miracle happens to one of the most insignificant people in terms of their prestige in that culture. Jesus raises this little girl saying, no, this girl has value. This girl matters to me. See, Matthew's arranging these stories in a way showing us how God's compassion, how his kingdom shows up in the world. See, it confronts our cultural norms. It confronts the way that we value people. It confronts who we think is most important, that God tends to show up among among the people that we would ordinarily write off, that God comes in ways that we least expect. And of course, verse 26, this report went throughout the district. It spread. And it spread even to Evergreen, Colorado today. That's the first story. And then let's look at these last two quickly. Because our story doesn't end there. In verses 27 and 31, we don't just see two women. We see two men coming to Jesus. And in this case, what's making them unclean is that they're blind. And just like the flow of blood, blindness was seen as a contamination. People thought that if you touch somebody who is blind, that person could also make you blind. So these are two people who have been cast out of society and culture. Verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, why son of David? Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that someone's used the term son of David. The only person to describe Jesus this way is Matthew himself in chapter one. Because see, the prophets, they would say the son of David would come, this redeemer that would restore all things that are broken. It's a picture of the Messiah. But see, the disciples and even the people in that day, the kind of Messiah king they wanted was a military king. Not the kind of king who would touch a little girl or heal a woman who was unclean. Not the kind of king that reaches down to the outcast, but the kind of king that rules with power and authority and puts people at their left and right hand to rule with authority over them. But see, that's not the way that Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in weakness Jesus reveals his strength by dying on the cross, and it's through our own weakness and faith and trusting in him that he makes us alive, that Jesus reveals his kingdom in a way that's unlike any kingdom the world has seen. And so these blind men, they cry out to him and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And notice what happens. They enter the house in verse 28, and the blind men came in, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes. Yes, Lord, we believe. And then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, it will be done to you. And so their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his fame throughout the district. Now, I don't know how Jesus thought that this wasn't gonna get out. I mean, you see a guy who's blind, and suddenly he sees. That's a story that's gonna get some traction. But see, part of the reality that you see in the life of Jesus 
is he's not interested in a crowd. He's interested in communicating compassion. These miracles are not about gathering a crowd. I mean, if he wanted to, he could have simply taken that little girl out into the courtyard with people all around, raised her up and said, hey, look, look at the power that I have. But see, God's power is not used to impress. God's power is used to heal. Jesus shows compassion, and in this same story, we see that same reality, that Jesus has compassion upon these men because they were desperate enough to pursue him. And here's the final story in verse 32. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled. And they said, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But notice the contrast, but the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. It's remarkable how quickly Matthew just simply goes from miraculous story to miraculous story to miraculous story with almost no explanation. We see that Jesus can touch the eyes of the blind. He can raise the dead. The question starts to come to mind, why doesn't he do that today? Because it seems as if everyone that comes to Jesus, do you notice, it's almost as an instant yes. It doesn't matter if their faith is perfect. It doesn't matter if their life is together. Everyone that comes to Jesus, you see restoration. Now, why is that? Because see, when you get into the book of Acts, certainly there's healing in the story of the church. But you start to see that healing. It's, it's not as, as apparent as it is in the gospels. It's not every single person that's healed. Because see, in the story of Jesus, what he's showing us through his life is what life is like in his kingdom. That where God's presence is, there is healing. That whatever God touches is healed. And Jesus is a foreshadowing, see, of what is to come when his kingdom comes, when God's presence covers the earth, all things are going to be made whole. All things will be made right. All things will be healed. And in the story that Matthew's telling us is every story is yes, but see today, not every story is yes physically. Because the reality is even in this story, many of these, all these individuals, not many, all of them died. There was eventually some challenge they couldn't overcome, but the story of the New Testament is that when God's presence comes, he begins to heal. And he starts with those who are desperate for him. Do you notice the kind of commonality in these stories? Each one of these comes by faith, but that faith is coupled with action. They reach out in humility. They're willing to step into a crowd. They're willing to lay down their titles and their influence and recognize their desperate need for Jesus. They come in faith, but they come in a humble faith that's willing to receive what Jesus has. And, and in this story, we see that God works through the humility of faith. God works when we're willing to not just have a faith that's intellectual, but a faith that acts. A faith that's willing to admit that I, I need you. And you'll see this throughout the Old and the New Testament. It's constantly reminding, constantly reminding, constantly reminding us, Jason, you need the Father. You're not created to have it together. Now our world tells us, you gotta have it together. And the way that you parent is by having it together. And the way you're successful by having it all together. But see, in God's kingdom, the best way to parent is not just by having it together, it's by pointing our kids to the one who is together. It's about showing our kids that I need Jesus. You know why dad's yelling at mom? 
because I need Jesus. You know what, dad's afraid? Because I need Jesus. There's no greater story that we can display to our kids than our own recognition of our need for the father. But so often in life, what happens is we want to appear strong. We're more concerned about the crowds, aren't we? We're more concerned about what other people think and other people say, and so we don't share those weaknesses. We don't get in community with others. And in some ways, we stay in that position of being unclean because we won't allow others into the story of of our life. We're not desperate. We're not desperate. And so often, the question I've got to ask myself is, what's filling that desperation in my life? Because see, in this world, there's always gonna be something that we turn to other than to the Father to meet our needs. And, and our world has no shortage of things that can satisfy, I mean, and people that look satisfied, right? Story after story. The question for you is, God recognizes, he sees our true condition, and that's why the Apostle Paul says, you know, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. But for us, men, often when it comes to the Father, when it comes to life, we think, hey, I, I got this. What's keeping you from recognizing your true spiritual condition before God? Throughout the Psalms, you constantly see this language. It says, you know, as the deer pants for streams of water, to so my soul thirsts for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? When's the last time you experienced thirst? A thirst that Netflix can't solve, shopping can't solve, a new experience can't solve, the kind of thirst that comes from the heart of God, the kind of thirst that can only be satisfied when the father looks at you and says, take heart, daughter, take heart, my son. I will make you well. What are you filling your life with that's keeping you from experiencing the fullness of God? And listen, in that, you can't do it alone. Can I be honest with you? You can't do it alone. You know, Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because see, they will be filled. And that's what the church is. This is to be a community of people who are thirsty and recognize that thirst and together we seek the Father. But the reality is we have to have the humility to admit, to admit our needs. And so as we conclude the service today, I just wanna encourage you to ask, ask yourself and allow the spirit to search you and say, you know, what is it that's quenching that desire for the Father? What, what is it that I'm putting in my life? What am I pursuing that's keeping me from that, that recognition, that 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 place of desire where the Father wants to meet us there. And then second, hey, are you willing to get into community? Because see, it's not gonna change just on your own. Following Christ isn't about us just doing it on our own. Rather, it's about us in community with others pursuing him. And so let me pray for you. And as we do, if you want to take of the communion elements, those elements are available to you in in the front and in the back. You know, we celebrate communion formally once a month, but we also wanna make that available to you. Sometimes when we make that commitment of faith, it's, it's good to go to the elements to remind ourselves it's through Jesus' broken body and his shed blood that we are made whole. But we do that in faith, recognizing our need for him. Let me pray for you, and then let's worship and respond together.
Father, I pray you would awaken in us a recognition for who we are and our desperate need for you. Father, that in, in life we ignore the Holy Spirit within us. We, we either downplay it as something that doesn't exist or we fill it with things in this life. And it numbs us enough. It, it shuts us down enough that that desire isn't overflowing within us, even to the extent that sometimes we think it doesn't exist, but through the simple act of faith, through a desperate cry, Father, as we say, Father, I need you. Would you manifest, Father, your presence in my weakness as I recognize the ways in life I'm avoiding you? Avoiding my recognition that, that Lord, you wanna work in me and through me, and often you wanna do that through others, through your word, through prayer, through community. Stir us this moment, Father, and lead us to that place where we can hunger and thirst for you. Guide us, Father, we'd ask in Jesus' name.